This is episode 180 of That Shakespeare Life. If you like our show and want to go even deeper into the life of William Shakespeare, then consider becoming a member. Members get access to our history activity kits, Shakespeare printables, and behind-the-scenes access to get even closer to history right here in the studio. Explore all the member benefits and bonus features at castycash.com slash experience, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Toby Capwell, Curator of Arms and Armor at the Wallace Collection in London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. The traveling library was probably something of a showcase in a private house. And why I emphasize that is the Brotherton Traveling Library, where you would expect if a book and its case is being moved around the country, shows very little wear and tear. And my personal belief is these were almost prestige items rather than something that enabled people to take favorite books with them on short or long journeys. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. William Shakespeare mentions the word book over 140 times across his works, showing not only their prominent place in society, but their popularity as well. There are several kinds of books referenced in Shakespeare's plays, including prayer books, muster books, horn books, and more. But one particular kind of book seen as a novelty for Shakespeare's lifetime that could be taken anywhere the owner themselves went was the tiny individual books collected together in what was known as a traveling library. These compact books were hardly larger than the standard standard pack of cards, and each one fit onto narrow shelves fashioned into a larger wood case shaped like a large book itself with a hard cover that opened and closed like a lid to both contain and protect the precious books held within. Often highly ornate, featuring elaborate paintings and even the coat of arms of those that had given or received the traveling library as a gift, these bookcases were part of what was known as a curiosity for the 17th century, when Jacobean English families would collect odd bits of treasure to display as a status symbol and conversation piece in their homes. As books were seen as precious items to be highly prized, owning a traveling library yourself was seen as an important privilege. One of these traveling libraries from 1617, the year after Shakespeare died, is housed at the Brotherton Library at the University of Leeds. Today, we are delighted to welcome one of the curators at the Brotherton Library, Dr. Michael Brennan, as an expert in travel and travel books of Shakespeare's lifetime to tell us about the history and purpose of this unique item. Michael G. Brennan is Professor of Renaissance Studies at the School of English, University of Leeds. His research and teaching focuses on 16th and 17th and 19th and 20th century English literature. He has published books on the Sydney family of Penhurst, early English travel writing, and 20th century fiction, especially the works of Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, and George Orwell. Hello, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for asking me. I'm glad to be here. 
We are often taught that large sections of society in the 16th and 17th century were illiterate. Does the prevalence of and commerce behind objects like traveling libraries suggest that there were large portions of society who could not only read, but that reading and collecting these books was fashionable for parts of society? Interesting question. Literacy, I think, at this period was variable. It depended very much upon wealth. It depended upon class. It depended upon role in society. In some areas, often agricultural areas, there would be much more limited literacy. Some families would have no books. Others would perhaps have a Bible or from 1549, a book of common prayer, whilst others would actually have much more access. And at this period that we're thinking about now, perhaps the most important point is that the mid-16th century onwards saw a boom in the education of varying classes across England. If I give you just two examples, one name will be very familiar, namely William Shakespeare. He was the son of a glove maker, but he had the benefit, being born in 1564, of going to a tremendous school in Stratford-upon-Avon, the King's New School which had only been founded in 1553. And he received there a very highly academic education based primarily on Latin texts. Another interesting example, and a name that won't be familiar to your listeners, is William Hakewill. He was born in 1574. And why I want to mention him is he's the individual who commissioned the making of the Brotherton Travelling Library. And his background's interesting because he was born in Exeter He was the son of a merchant, but he was obviously of a very different, I think, academic or literary strata to Shakespeare because his mother, Tamazin Perriam, was the cousin of Sir Thomas Bodley, and Thomas Bodley founded the Bodleian Library in Oxford University. So Hakewell went to Exeter College, Oxford. He began a career at Lincoln's Inn in in London, and by the time 1617, when the Travelling Library was made, he was appointed as Solicitor General to King James's wife, Queen Anne. He also became a Member of Parliament and leading antiquarian. So Shakespeare and William Hakewell, I think, are both beneficiaries of the education system of the 16th century, but perhaps from very different backgrounds, but both linked to fathers who belonged to the mercantile class. When we say traveling library, was this a library that traveled around for people to borrow from or traveling in the sense of being portable for personal use for someone that wanted to take their books they owned with them as they traveled? Yeah, the terminology is interesting because in 16th, 17th century, there was no such thing as public libraries. And what we think of today as a traveling library is something that really moves around, often by road, to deliver books to people who may not have ready access to libraries, who are elderly or infirm, or for some other reason. But at this period, a traveling library depends very much upon the individual. It is something owned by an individual, and it gives them personal use of books perhaps when traveling, but also the kind of owners of these libraries would perhaps have a London residence, they would have a country residence, they might be moving around, particularly in the legal profession, to different parts of the country, and it enabled them to actually take books with them, small size, but much more portable, and therefore could often be perhaps favourite volumes by favourite authors. There's one other point I would make, though, Because as work has progressed on these travelling libraries, 
And there's only four surviving ones that I think are known of with the complete case made to look like a book. These may also have been regarded almost as prized possessions. The term often used is cabinet of curiosities, where people would collect antiquities, fossils, other rare objects and jewels, and show them to visiting friends and colleagues. The travelling library was probably something of a showcase in a private house. And why I emphasise that is the Brotherton Travelling Library, where you would expect if a book and its case is being moved around the country, shows very little wear and tear. And my personal belief is these were almost prestige items rather than something that enabled people to take favourite books with them on short or long journeys. How many books are included in the Travelling Library? In the Travelling Library in the Brotherton, there's 43 miniature books. And they're very well ordered. They are on three shelves. Whether they were chosen by Hakewell himself or by perhaps a bookseller is not known. But they clearly actually have a significance and order to them. Because what we actually have is theology and philosophy are all on the top shelf. Classical history is in the middle shelf. And poetry is on the bottom shelf. Each book's bound in a white limp vellum with coloured fabric ties. And this is, I think, the nice touch. They have blue ties for theology and philosophy, red ties for history, and pink ones for poetry. And each book has a gilded angel tooled on the spine, and on the front, another angel bearing a scroll, which reads, Gloria Deo, glory to God. So they're very carefully designed in terms of their subject matter and also their physical appearance. What titles are in the library that's held there in the actual Brotherton Traveling Library? The ones we have in in the 43 miniature volumes are very varied. They relate primarily to classical writing. So there are examples of works by Seneca, Cicero, Tacitus, Suetonius, Sallust. There's also poetry of Virgil, of Ovid, of Horace and Catullus. Marshall and plays by Terence, but also some later writers, Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. And it's interesting when we look at these books individually, because many of them in the Brotherton Travelling Library were printed in Leiden in Holland, and they're all printed between 1610 and 1616. But there are some others that were printed in Antwerp, Douai, Cologne, Heidelberg and Amsterdam. And there's even one from 1557 while all the others span the period of the 1590s to 1610. So what we've actually got is an eclectic mixture, which perhaps suggests that the person commissioning this collection could choose from a much larger selection which volumes were actually included. What size are the books in relation to typical books of the period? Pretty small. If I say that the typical book of the period is called a quarto, which probably approximates very roughly to the kind of book size we would expect today. They're about one quarter the size of the average volume that a person in the early 17th century would be purchasing from a bookseller. Some books, obviously, like the Shakespeare folio, are much larger. So we have folio, which is the largest size. We have quarto, which is the average size that you and I perhaps might regard still today as an average size for a book. And then they made books called Octavo, which was smaller than Quarto. But what we have in a travelling library go down smaller and smaller. 
And some of the very smallest of these miniature books are only about 10 to 12 centimetres in height. So they can be held in the palm of a hand very, very easily, and the fingers of the other would simply hold the pages open. Um, So it's a different reading experience, except it does give the owner the access to the favourite passages from Horace or Virgil that they would read in a much larger volume. When you're having to read them, are they small enough that you would need something like a magnifying glass to read them? I think that I would probably prefer to have a magnifying glass. When I was last looking at them in the Brotherton Travelling Library, you can hold it in the palm of your hand and you can make out the lettering perfectly well. They're very delicately printed. I'm not sure I'd like to study, say, the volume of Tacitus for two or three hours because I probably wouldn't see much else at the end of that. So a glass would actually be helpful. And I suspect that this period people would actually use them either by increasing the size or perhaps, I think, dipping into favourite passages. And one thing that they might be very useful for is regaining or finding favourite quotations or favourite passages that may only take, say, a minute to read, But to have that small miniature book there could make all the difference if an individual was traveling or if a group of friends were sitting around in this individual's library and they were looking at these individual books. Perhaps a group of 10 or 12 friends would come to dinner. They would adjourn to the library. They'd each take one or two of these books and be able to read and share different passages that they knew or they found interesting or were favorites of the group that are meeting. Now, you alluded to this earlier, but just to be clear about how the set came together, we're calling this the Brotherton Traveling Library, but were books like these of this period printed as a set that you would go and buy a collection of traveling library books in a a group together? Or was it little tiny books that like if you went to a shop, could you select books and sort of add to your traveling library over time and such that the traveling library that survives is very personal to whoever collected them into this group? Yeah, it's a very intriguing question. And I can't give an exact answer to that. We can only say what people have hypothesized and what people have thought might be the case. But one of the things I'd mentioned, first of all, as I talked about earlier, is that virtually all the books of this size at this period were printed abroad. It's not really common printing practice in England at the time. So if they're coming from Leiden, as many of the books are in the Brotherton collection, they could also be coming from Antwerp or Douai or other locations. What that suggests to me is that there's a much larger selection of miniature books available. And the person who were ordering that collection could select which titles or at least which authors they would actually like. It's probable they were imported into England, and then they could be sold separately, which would give, I think, a very pleasant, shall we say, Christmas or New Year's present. If, as we do today, we unwrap a present and you have a particular favourite book, and let's say it's Jane Austen's Emma, and someone gives you a wonderfully finely bound tooled copy in miniature of Emma. It's a very special gift to give someone. So they may have been used individually, but I think the grouping together in these particular travelling libraries would be an eclectic mixture of the person commissioning the library, suggesting which works he would like included. And if I may, I'll give you two more examples, which are really interesting ones, because there are two other significant sets of miniature books that have survived. 
and they are both for the sons of King James I. So this is exactly at the period that we're looking at. The first set was bound for his eldest son, Prince Henry, who would have been Henry IX of England, but sadly died young, age 1612. And there's no box with his books, but they have survived the collection together in the British Library. And there's another set, also without a box, made for Prince Henry's younger brother, Prince Charles, who later became King Charles I. They're now in the Bodleian Library, Oxford. And the dates are known approximately when these books were put together. And what's interesting is they were put together for these royal individuals when they were children. And the idea almost, as we perhaps still have dolls' houses today, is that children might particularly appreciate a much smaller book that would fit very readily into a child's hand in the way that you or I could probably hold a quarto book and use it as a standard volume. Children could use these smaller books. But the fact that there's two sets, both commissioned for the sons of King James I, is, I think, very interesting to think of yet another way of how they might have been used in this case for children. What material is the library made out of? It's a box, and it's made of wood, but then it's very carefully bound in leather to make it look like a book. In fact, a folio book, just like Shakespeare's first folio. And what you have when you open it up, because at a distance, you would think it's simply a large folio. If it was lying flat and you opened it up, you would see all the miniature books in front of you. But on the other side, on the back covers of the binding, there's highly decorated vellum. And it's illustrated with the recipient's coats of arms and also includes a handwritten catalogue of all the volumes in the collection. And the four surviving boxes were all commissioned by William Hakewill and probably were made by the same craftsman. We don't know whether the craftsman was in London, as is quite possible, perhaps even probable, or maybe the caskets came from abroad as well, and then the titles could be written on vellum, which was adhered to the inside cover. But someone had thought at some point of making a box and disguising it as a large folio volume. And what we actually have is something that must have been really a very remarkable gift when the recipients might have thought, ah, I'm receiving a big volume of history, philosophy, theology. And then what they saw and opened this up was a treasure trove of miniature books. Do we know how much the library would have been worth or what kind of cost it would require to purchase one of these in the 16th and 17th century? Not really, no. There's no records that anyone's found so far about how much it costs to make or how much it would be valued. For that matter, there's very little history of them, of any of them, before the 20th century. So we have no real sense of value. What I would say, though, is that William Hakewill, although he was the son of a merchant from Exeter, became an immensely well-connected MP, lawyer, and courtier. And I think the monetary value of what we have here is almost secondary to him. They wouldn't have been cheap. They would have cost him a fair amount to put this together. Maybe even in modern day terms, a thousand, two thousand, even three thousand dollars, maybe more. Who knows? But the point of them, I think, in the case of where they went to is interesting because he commissioned these just at the time that he was achieving really the peak of his literary, of his legal career when he, he was appointed to the court of Queen Anne in this very prominent legal role. And what he did was actually give these 
uh, collections to other prominent lawyers. And so I think what we actually have is this, the expense, probably to you or I, would be a significant amount. But to Hakewill, in terms of his legal profession and being a courtier, this was money very well invested. I know we would love to explore this topic further, the whole idea of traveling libraries and where they come from, as well as the surviving copies that you mentioned that exist today. What are some of your favorite books and resources you can recommend we use to learn more? What I've done is on this podcast, you'll find a list of web links, and I've tried to include as many as possible to give you just a sense of the real diversity. Many of your listeners perhaps have not heard of miniature books before, but there were a considerable number in the 16th, 17th century. And then I should say going right through up to the early 20th century and even today. On the list of web links, for example, there's a very interesting book by Lewis Bondy called Miniature Books, Their History from the Beginnings to the Present Day. And that's well worth looking at and also is on open access on the web. So you can go through that. I've also included what fascinates me, a web resource on what's called Three Centuries of Tom Thumb Bibles. And these were literally very small volumes of biblical text that people could use and I think did use for personal private devotion, because in many cases, the actual text was very well known to the person. It wasn't so much they were reading it as the miniature text was an aid memoir. There's other web links there that you might like to look at. There's also various catalogues of miniature books. And I've even included one or two connections as a very good dissertation by an American scholar on them. So there's plenty there to dip into and to realize that miniature books are something that carries on from this period. And also, I should say, there's a very interesting tradition of American miniature books. So there's plenty there in terms of the web links. Yes, and we will provide a list. Michael has been very generous giving us lots of links to Oxford and Alexa Goff, and there's there's lots of works here that you can see, and we'll link all of these in the show notes for today's episode, so make sure you go there to find those. Now, Michael, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. You're placing me on the, I think, longest running radio program in the UK, Desert Island Discs. Absolutely, yes. I have my Bible, I have my Shakespeare. What else do I choose? Having spent over 50 years involved with books, it's a very difficult decision. But what I think I'd take, if I may, is the complete works of Sir Philip Sidney. If I could explain, some of your listeners will know Sidney, but Sir Philip Sidney was born in 1554, 10 years before Shakespeare. Um, He wrote a prose romance, The Arcadia. He wrote various poems of various kinds, songs and so on. He was a great importer of continental traditions. But what I'd like to recommend is that I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with the incredible achievement of Shakespeare's sonnets. I would personally argue, to be a little mischievous, that Shakespeare's sonnets are almost as impressive as Philip Sidney's sonnet sequence, Astrophel and Stella. And also, he wrote Astrophel and Stella before Shakespeare had ever written a sonnet. So I'd like to take the complete works of Philip Sidney, but I'd like to tempt people, if they haven't done so, to dip into, they're freely available on the internet again, um, Sidney's Astrophel and Stella. It's a magnificent collection of poetry. 
We will absolutely link to Astrophil and Stella on the show notes for today as well, because yes, you should dip into those for sure. That's an excellent selection. Michael, what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Um, Well, at the moment, I've got three projects going. I work in 16th, 17th century and also 19th and 20th century. So I've just got a book being prepared for the press called English Travellers to Venice between 1450 and 1600, which has many writers who are actually travelling, but also pilgrims, merchants, politicians, diplomats, and it's their accounts of their first encounters with Venice. So it's been fascinating to put together, and I've um, worked in Venice on them for quite a while, so I'm looking forward to that book coming out in 2022. But as I say, I also work in the 19th and 20th century, and Oxford University Press have a major project of 44 volumes of a complete works of Evelyn War of which the overall editor is Evelyn War's grandson, Alexander War. And I, a while ago, published War's first book, an edition of it, which was a biography of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And I'm just completing a second volume for this series, Evelyn War's book about Mexico, which is called Robbery Under Law. And then the final project, which I think I've already given a clue to, is I'm editing the complete poetry of Sir Philip Sidney. So if you do strand me on the desert island, I'll be able to get on with useful work, apart from building myself a hut and trying to invent fire and waving to passing ships. (laughs) I should be very well tuned to actually write the complete works, uh, complete poems of Philip Sidney by the time, hopefully, I'm rescued from the desert island. A very industrious use of your time there on the desert island, for sure. Well, Michael, Brennan, thank you so much for being here with us this week and sharing with us the history of traveling libraries and these little miniature books that are just so exciting to explore. I really appreciate you sharing of your time and visiting with us today. Thank you for asking me. It's been a pleasure to be here. You can find the show notes for today's episode, along with all the resources Michael mentions today and some bonus history, including pictures and images of the traveling libraries we're talking about today, in the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 180. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP180. If you like this episode and you want to go even further into the life of William Shakespeare with games, activities, and bonus history interviews not available anywhere else, then you want to become a member at That Shakespeare Life. Access the entire video streaming library full of hundreds of animated plays, documentaries, bonus interviews, and more. Find all the benefits of membership and sign up today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. I'll see you inside. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.